Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, I have Dr. Vincent Pedre, a board-certified internist and author of the book, Happy Gut. The book was born out of his work helping countless patients resolve their gut-related health issues, and it guides readers on his unique approach to well-being by balancing gut health through diet, movement, yoga, breathing exercises, and mindfulness. Dr. Pedre is also a clinical instructor at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, as well as certified in yoga and medical acupuncture. His philosophy and practices are a blend of both Western and Eastern medical traditions. His unique combination of medicine is best defined as a functional systems-based approach to health. Dr. Pedre has also appeared on Dr. Oz, Good Morning America, Fox News, The Martha Stewart Show, The Early Show, Sirius XM, Dr. Radio, and ABC News Healthy Living. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pedre. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I would like to start with you telling the listeners about the premise of your book, Happy Gut. I mean, basically, Happy Gut was born first out of my own experiences uh, struggling with gut health issues and gut-related issues growing up as a teenager that was given 20 plus rounds of antibiotics, probably from the age of 10 to like 19. And it just destroyed my gut microbiome. I suffered from food sensitivities, gluten, dairy being the primary ones, but there were some other ones. And it took me more than two decades to unravel that, you know, as I was a medical student and doctor in training, but we really didn't get any training on functional gut health. And it wasn't until I discovered functional medicine that I really started unraveling and understanding what exactly had happened to me and what I thought was just my normal, quote unquote, was actually something that I didn't have to live with. IBS-like symptoms, fatigue, lack of energy, mental fog, all these things related to my gut health. And I was really fascinated with working with patients who came in with any sort of gut issue. And I started paying attention to which patients came in with what. And one correlation I made was that all my migraine patients had gut health issues. And I started seeing allergy patients had gut health issues or food sensitivities or patients with asthma also had gut health issues. I just became really fascinated with it. And Little by little, I became known for working with patients with gut health issues. And, you know, family members would refer family members then, or they would refer work colleagues or friends. And little by little, I found my practice <laughs> sort of skewing towards gut health and realized that a lot of people don't know what to do. And yet, It's complex and simple at the same time. You know, the gut is one of the most complex ecosystems on the planet with a hundred trillion bacteria that outnumbers the number of stars in the Milky Way galaxy, which is 400 billion. So if you can kind of wrap your head around that, 
It's a really yeah. complex ecosystem interdependent with the bacteria that are living inside. And there could be parasites, there can be yeast, there could be worms, there could be all sorts of things living in there that can disrupt a person's health. And I realized that a lot of people just don't know what to do. That was the inspiration finally for, you know, part of the inspiration for writing my book was to bring clarity to all those people out there that are suffering needlessly with gut health issues, but also gut-related health issues because I've had patients that have no symptoms related to digestion or the diarrhea, constipation, and yet they are carrying parasites or they have leaky gut. And that leaky gut is triggering their autoimmune thyroid disease or some other autoimmunity or joint aches or mental fog or just generalized malaise, fatigue, muscle achiness. So I really wanted to help people find a way to improve their health by starting with the foundation of gut health. And that's really what inspired me to write my book, Happy Gut. Yes, and I find it so interesting. I think we just get used or numb to our symptoms, that a few blemishes on the face are normal, that bloating after we eat is normal, that walking up the stairs and having a little joint pain is normal. But explain to the people some of the symptoms that they can experience from an unhappy gut. The most common symptom that I see people complain about is bloating. That's probably top of the board, the most common symptom. Then you're going to have a lot of people who are constipated. They might have diarrhea. There are people who might have abdominal pain. But then there's all these other symptoms that I call gut-related symptoms, which you pointed to. It could be adult acne. It can be brain fog. It can be headaches. It could be migraines. It can be allergies, asthma, other skin rashes like eczema, psoriasis, autoimmune disease, joint aches, unspecified autoimmune disease. You know, like I had a patient who had moved to the U.S. from India, and she came to see me with an unspecified autoimmune disease. She had all sorts of autoimmune markers. She had a four-year-old boy and she was tired all the time, but her joints were achy and they would get inflamed from time to time. Now that could sound like an infectious disease. That could be Lyme disease, yeah. for example, which was ruled out. And I really suspected that there's, there was probably something going on in her gut. So I asked her about that and every question was, the answer was, no, my poops are fine. I have no abdominal pain. I don't feel anything there. I'm totally fine. But when I did testing, she had leaky gut. She had two parasites. She had yeast overgrowth. And what was really fascinating and elucidating to me, which is just remarkable because if she goes to a standard Western doctor, they wanted to put her on biologicals. They wanted to put her on steroids. Yeah. They're treating it from the top down. They're looking at the symptom and they're saying, okay, how can we get rid of this symptom? And instead, what I, what I do, which is functional medicine, is kind of like I'm opening the hood of the car and I'm looking inside and I'm trying to figure out what is it that's causing these symptoms we're seeing on the surface that most likely are coming from the gut. Well, treating her parasite, treating the yeast overgrowth, 
and getting rid of food sensitivities, um, foods that she just wasn't used to eating, having grown up in India. Within two months, she had no joint aches. Her energy was back. And, you know, you see things like this and you wonder, oh my gosh, like this is a miracle. Like how did this happen? But it's really, (laughs) this is how the body works. This is the underlying physiology of the body, which has been ignored by Western medicine for so many years because we've been so caught up with treating symptoms that we forgot that we've got to look for the root cause of those symptoms, that treating the symptoms sometimes is not enough. Sometimes, yeah, if a patient is really uncomfortable, I'm all for treating symptoms while at the same time looking for root cause. But you always have to try to figure out what the root cause is. Yeah, that's what's so cool about your background with little Western, Eastern mix and really trying to find the underlying cause and not just treating the symptom. And I know antibiotics are sometimes necessary, but sometimes they're often overprescribed and probably a little bit patient driven, the patient kind of pushing and wanting that antibiotic. So what do you have to say about that? And if a patient is on an antibiotic, what should they do when they complete that round of antibiotics? Yeah, I mean, I want to underscore because a lot of times I'll, you know, in my own story, I talk about how antibiotics messed up my gut microbiome. But at the same token, I had sometimes pneumonia, sinusitis, like I just kept, I was in this vicious cycle of infections. And I've seen it, antibiotics are life-saving. If you have a urinary tract infection and you don't treat it, it could track all the way to your kidneys and then you get a kidney infection that gets into your bloodstream and you could end up in the hospital in a very dangerous situation. So antibiotics are life-saving. We can't live without them all the time. I do believe that they are overprescribed. And actually there's been studies that have shown that. We've reversed what we thought was the standard of care for children, that antibiotics were the treatment of choice for an ear infection. They found 20 years later, which was probably about six, seven years ago, that ear infections do not need to be treated with antibiotics for the most part in children and that we were, you know, over prescribing antibiotics in kids. It's also interesting that antibiotics get over prescribed more often in minorities. So blacks and Hispanics tend to get antibiotic prescriptions more than any other ethnic group. But you know, when you go on antibiotics, it's going to it's gonna kill bad bugs, but it's also gonna kill some good bugs. And in order to understand you know, why is it important to not kill those good bugs. Those good bugs are doing a whole bunch of processes. They are creating what we call postbiotics. Everybody knows what a probiotic is. It's the friendly, favorable bacteria that live in the gut. Postbiotic is what those bacteria produce that we absorb, and it has a metabolic effect in the body. For example, postbiotics can help regulate our blood sugar levels. They also help control our ability to learn and create memories because they affect neuroplasticity. So these are really important things. And over time, if you're overexposed to antibiotics, you mess up this whole symbiotic system. But when you're on antibiotics, I think, and I'm seeing this in Europe where they'll prescribe a probiotic after an antibiotic course to help the gut get back into balance. I actually, especially if I have a patient who's going to be on antibiotics for a long time, 
for example, a patient who's been diagnosed with Lyme and they're going to have to be on a, an extended course of antibiotics, then I will protect yeah. the gut with a favorable yeast that cannot be killed by the antibiotic, typically Saccharomyces boulardii, uh, which is very easy to find in different um, supplement companies. A lot of them make it. And what that does is it helps coat and protect the gut lining and actually helps protect against leaky gut that can be induced by antibiotics. And then post-antibiotic, I think a lot of times it's important to take a probiotic course and also incorporate fermented foods if you can tolerate them. Not everyone can tolerate fermented foods. I know we think like fermented foods are good. They're not good for everyone. Anybody who has a histamine issue is not going to be able to tolerate fermented foods. But if you can incorporate even little amounts of kefir, like a, a shot of kefir every day after you're done with antibiotics for a couple of weeks, that's going to help your gut start to restructure it. You can get ferments in different ways. It could be pickles. It could be sauerkraut. You know, it could be a dairy-free yogurt if you have dairy issues, if you have a dairy sensitivity. So it doesn't all have to be dairy. There's, you know, the incredible thing about the time that we live in now is that there's so many options where you, if you don't have to have something in its original form. But one study actually showed, um, this came out last year, this is done by Stanford University, that eating a, a diet high in fermented foods increases gut microbiome diversity more than anything else. And that's really important. Also lowers 19 inflammatory markers. So it's important for people to realize that the key to wellness is gut microbiome diversity. And what does diversity mean? It just means you have this wide array of different bugs of different species living inside your gut, some of which might be bad bugs, quote unquote, but in balance with the good bugs, they're okay as long as they haven't overgrown. What often happens when people are on, on too many rounds of antibiotics is you start killing off the good bugs. It allows bad bugs to claim real estate in the gut and other things like yeast, like candida to start claiming real estate. And it shifts the balance of this delicate ecosystem and then you get overgrowth of yeast and you might get yeast symptoms. You might start getting vaginal yeast infections. You, you might start getting itchy. You might get signs of mycotoxin toxicity in the brain, uh, brain fog, not being able to concentrate at work, ADD-like symptoms. And this could all be tied back to the gut as a result of having been on rounds of antibiotics. Do you also prescribe prebiotics? Sometimes, yes, or I like to prescribe a symbiotic that includes a prebiotic with a probiotic together. The one thing I want to say about prebiotics is that Americans a lot of times think that if a little is good, a lot is even better. And that's not the case <laughs> yes. with prebiotics. Prebiotics are food for the bacteria in the gut but if your gut is in balance or if there's too many bacteria in the wrong place, those bacteria are going to ferment these prebiotic fibers that are not digestible by our own enzymes. And when they ferment, they produce gases like hydrogen, methane, sulfide, and that can make you feel really uncomfortable. Another name for prebiotic that people might hear or see when they're at a health food store, they're also called resistant starches. 
It's the same thing. Prebiotic, resistant starch, fiber, these are all interchangeable. They're all very similar things. And they can cause really uncomfortable gas and bloating. So I'm very careful with prebiotics, having experienced different reactions with patients. And if I, if I incorporate a prebiotic, then which is fiber, I almost first prefer to do it through food, you know, get more fiber through food okay. because most people, most Americans are only eating about 10 grams of fiber per day. And we should be getting anywhere between 25 to 35 grams per day. So we're under eating fiber and fiber is really important for the health of the colon and help, and really helps with movement of stool through the colon. So if you're not getting enough fiber, then you might tend towards constipation, which is also not good because you're holding things in for too long. That same study I talked about, the Stanford study that looked at, uh, basically looked at what does a high fermented foods diet do versus a high fiber diet. And even though the high fiber diet in this study didn't show that it improved microbiome diversity, what it did show is that fiber served as an immune modulator. And what does that mean? What are the bacteria doing? They're basically regulating the immune response. And if you can think back to COVID and the people who succumbed to COVID, what was hypothesized is that it's an immune response. Basically, it's a runaway train. The immune response just goes out of control, doesn't know how to stop, and it starts attacking the lung tissue. Very similar to what happened back during the Spanish flu. The people who died of the Spanish flu, if they did autopsies, their lungs were just disintegrated. They basically destroyed their own lungs. So you don't die from the disease directly. You die from your immune system's overreaction to the infection where it can't shut off. So what fiber does is it helps the probiotic bacteria in the gut produce postbiotic nutrients that help regulate our immune system. So they speak to and interact with our immune system, kind of like a conductor conducting a symphony, yeah. making sure that it doesn't get too loud, it doesn't get too low, keeping the flow the right way. That's a big role that the good bacteria in our gut play and fiber helps with that. So it helps with immunomodulation. Let's talk about pooping a little more because you mentioned it twice now. What does normal stool bowel movements, What? how regular should they be? What should they look like? Because I think there's a lot of people that think they might be normal, but it's it's not. Yeah, definitely. I get people think that pooping twice a week is normal. That's not normal. And no. I know there's controversy no over how many times is ideal. I say that once a day is what you want to strive for. Some people might go up to three times a day. They have what they, we call a gastrocolic reflex. You eat, and then that stimulates your bowels to empty. So you might empty three times a day. The normal poop should be not too soft, not too hard, just kind of like a Goldilocks. And... It should actually be pretty clean, so it's not going to take a lot of wipes afterwards to clean it up. If it's too soft, probably not getting enough fiber. 
If it's too hard, it could be the same thing, probably not getting enough fiber and the person's dehydrated. They're not drinking enough water or they're not getting enough healthy fat in the diet as well. So what if somebody eats and then has to go to the bathroom right, right away and it's diarrhea? Something's going on there. So it could be that what they just ate doesn't agree with them. So there could be a food sensitivity there that triggered in a histamine response and a sudden need to empty. It could be that they have underlying IBS, which is, you know, again, it's just an umbrella term that doesn't really tell us what the underlying reason is. They could have a parasite, they could have yeast overgrowth, they could have dysbiosis, they could have leaky gut. And these are the types of things that I'm very much in favor of collecting data in people like this. I don't want to make assumptions that, oh, this is happening to you, this is why. There's a whole bunch of reasons why. You know, it could be that the person has a really sensitive stomach that responds to stress and they're really stressed out and they eat and then they need to run to the bathroom. So it's really the effect of stress, the vagus nerve, sympathetic tone that's causing all this to happen. But I love collecting data using functional tests to look at a whole bunch of different stool markers, including inflammatory markers, enzyme production, the ability to break down food effectively, and looking at the microbiome and seeing what's the balance of good, bad, are there any signs of parasites, of yeast overgrowth? You know, because then that that helps us then start to figure out a treatment plan. Is there leaky gut? And do we need to work on you know, it might be as simple as, oh, we need to start working on leaky gut and put a person on a leaky gut formula with L-glutamine in it. And that starts making a huge difference. So it's really fascinating. You know, there's so many different pathways that people might take yeah. to getting to a normal poop. What type of labs are you running or what company are you using for your food sensitivity testing? I've changed over the years, uh, the companies that I use, and it's always dependent on my education and, and really as I learn about companies, their methods and how they're doing things and, and also balance with what's affordable to patients, what can be reachable. For example, I've used Genova a lot in the past and they have a profile, a stool profile called the GIFX profile, which is very informative and gets, gives you a gut diversity score. I've recently started skewing more towards Vibrant America Labs and using their Gut Zoomer. I think the Gut Zoomer gives a bunch of very applicable, useful information. I also love their food sensitivities profiles because they they really can look at it in, in different ways. You can do an IgA, IgG food sensitivity profile, or you can do a complement activation with IgG4. There's nothing perfect about food sensitivity profiles, uh, which is important for people to know. If you're testing for food allergies, that's been standardized across all labs. You're pretty much going to get the same result regardless of what lab you send it to. But if you're looking for food sensitivities, which is a different type of immune reaction, it's more indolent, it's more subtle. It's usually what's kind of going on in the background, but it's hard to recognize for a lot of people. That... yeah type of test can vary from lab to lab. So even if when I get a result like that, it's only to help motivate the person a lot of times to do what I already know they need to do, 
which is, for example, cut out wheat, gluten, corn, soy. But if I can show them that their body is having a reaction to these things, that's extra motivation for the person. The Vibrant America does a test called the Wheat Zoomer, which looks for a whole bunch of gluten metabolites, including metabolites that have effects on lung health, on the nervous system, and also gut permeability markers like um, antibodies to zonulin and actin, which is basically part of the, the filaments that keep the gut lining together. So I love getting that information because then I can explain to the patient that, you know, even if you don't have celiac disease, look at all these ways your body is reacting to gluten. We've got to cut gluten out because it's causing an inflammatory reaction in your body. Another lab that I don't use as often because of, because it does tend to be a little costlier, but it's called Cyrex and it's an immunological lab and they do they do really in- That's who. Yeah, they they do really interesting food. That's who we use. Yeah, they're great. You know, they they look at foods in a different way so they'll look at the reaction to cooked protein which most labs are not checking the cooked protein which is different from the the raw protein. So I think they're, you know, all of these are very useful. They're informative. But you always have to interlay them with the patient. What is the patient presenting with? Does it make sense? Does what the lab is showing me, does that make sense? And labs are not foolproof. You might have a patient with yeast overgrowth who's showing signs of yeast overgrowth, and then when you, and yet when you test them, they're testing negative. Well, do you treat the lab or you treat the patient? You always treat the patient. Yeah. There's a bit of a gray zone with these things, but I still love doing the testing because I think the data is is really important for patients. It makes it real and concrete, and it's a great way to motivate them to then create the lifestyle and behavior changes that you know are going to help them feel better. Maybe explain the difference a little more between a food allergy and a food sensitivity and why understanding a food sensitivity can really help you like optimize your diet, what you're saying. So food allergies, most people understand them like peanut allergy, pine nut allergy. They can be acute. They happen within seconds or minutes of eating the food. It can lead to anaphylaxis in worst case scenarios or just lead to hives. And those allergies are mediated by a type of antibody called IgE. Very different from food sensitivity. So IgEs have a half-life of only three to four days. So they're not in your bloodstream for a long time. So if you stop eating the food, your reaction reduces pretty quickly. Whereas if you are having a food sensitivity, the reaction is not immediate. It can happen within an hour of eating. It could be hours later. It could be 12 hours later. It could be two days later when the reaction peaks. So a lot of times it makes it difficult to go back and trace in time what food caused the reaction. Food sensitivities are being mediated by IgAs and IgGs mostly and complement activation, which is part of the blood clotting cascade. And for people who have food sensitivities, the half-life of IgG is 21 days. So that's why typically when we learn about elimination diets and taking, taking foods that are suspected to cause food sensitivities, 
Usually those elimination diets are for 21 days. My program in Happy Gut, which is an elimination diet to heal the gut, is actually 28 days long because I felt after working with patients for a while that 21 days just wasn't long enough, that you needed an extra week because it took about two weeks to unravel the immunological reactions that happen with food sensitivities, including what we call immune complex formation, which imagine, you know, IgG's uh, immunoglobulins are like like goalposts, like football goalposts. They look like Ys. And if they're attached to a food particle that you react to, they can connect to each other and they make a circle. That's what we call an immune complex. And those immune complexes are heavier than other things in the bloodstream. And they tend to precipitate in places like joints where it's cooler. And that's where you can cause joint inflammation. So if you remember the patient I talked about in the beginning that was having all this joint swelling, probably because of immune complexes related to what was going on in the gut, the leaky gut and, and the toxins, things that were filtering in that were causing immune activation for her that resulted in a supposed autoimmune disease. So that's the difference between the two. And what we're mainly working with, I mean, sometimes, yeah, food allergies, but I think the, the more challenging thing to work with is food sensitivities because the other thing about them is that the person may eat a food three times and they only get a notable reaction two out of the three times. So then they're thinking, well, but it doesn't happen every time. So they're confused because they think, well, this food isn't doing it, but you have to look at the bigger picture. Most of the time it's creating an effect that you can see. And when it's not, it's probably still happening at the happening at the microscopic level. It's increasing inflammation in your body. And inflammation is the common denominator for every chronic degenerative disease in the body. So we want the primary goal of working on gut health is to lower inflammation by reversing leaky gut and improving the makeup of the gut microbiome. Yeah. Because when you do that, then yeah. you reverse the clock on all of all the different chronic diseases that can happen in the body. Inflammaging. Inflammaging. Can you explain what happens to the gut microbiome and that intestinal lining as we continue to eat these foods that we're sensitive to, even though we might not be having this anaphylactic reaction? What long-term is that doing to that gut lining? It's like you keep throwing wood on the fire. You know, so you're, you're just adding to the flames and it's a chronic, indolent, ongoing inflammatory reaction that is causing the gut lining to wear itself down. So it's increasing gut leakiness. It's allowing for toxins to get into the body. The most predominant one or the most uh, inflammatory one being LPS or endotoxin, which has been linked with obesity and diabetes. And it's like you're fighting a war that's not ending. I used to kind of yeah. make the analogy to Afghanistan. It's just this chronic war that's just not stopping and it's eroding the gut lining. So the more you eat those foods, the more damage you're causing. The good news is your gut lining is constantly renewing itself, constantly replicating, renews every four to seven days. So you can heal and reverse this, but it doesn't happen overnight because you're healing 
a giant surface. You know, it's all tucked in here, but your small intestine alone is the size of about a tennis court in surface area. If you were to open it and roll it all the way out. Yeah. Isn't it something like 200 times greater than your skin? It's a huge surface area. So people wonder, you know, they come in to see me and they want to be better in a month. Well, you might start feeling improvements in a month, but it's going to take months and it could even take a year, two years to unravel and heal all the damage that is inside from all the years before where the person was eating foods they were sensitive to, had leaky gut and whatnot. So part of the reason for an elimination diet is to cool down the immune system, to stop this constant immune attack and start allowing the balance between you know, destruction and repair to start shifting towards the repair side and allow the gut to repair itself. So I love this saying, it's the gut has its hands on the steering wheel of your brain. So I would like for you to explain the connection between the gut and the brain. That's a very key one that I wrote about in Happy Gut, but I'm actually writing a more detailed explanation of this gut-brain connection in my second book, which is coming out in April of 2023, called The Gut Smart Protocol. And it really is tied together through the vagus nerve. I call the vagus nerve a telephone wire. And it's funny because my publisher called it out and said, I wonder if people are going to understand what a telephone wire is since you know, everybody's using cell phones now. And, and I said, you know, I think people will still, you know, still understand that at, some, at one point we had telephone wires that connected one phone to the other. And I think sometimes kids' toys yeah. still have kind of like that, that idea. But I think of it as a telephone wire and it's a bi-directional interface, but it's got more wires pointing up to the brain from the gut, probably 70, 80% versus wires pointing down from the brain to the gut. But it works in both directions. So the vagus nerve has receptors on the gut lining for serotonin that are stimulated by serotonin created and secreted by the gut microbiome that then sends a signal up to the brain. The vagus is also innervates all of the other internal organs. So there's vagus wiring to the heart, to the lungs, the liver, the pancreas. The vagus nerve is getting reading from the periphery and telling the brain what's going on. Now, what's interesting is there are more neurons, neural connections in the gut. The enteric nervous system has more connections than the brain does, which is quite fascinating. You know, that's why we talk about like gut feelings, gut intuition. I even think of the gut as the place where we energetically digest our emotions. It's where we're processing so interesting. What we're, what we're receiving from the world. Now, if we reverse that, you know, which is really fascinating, something that we call vagal tone. And I think of it as, again, I'm going to go, I'm going to date myself and talk about a dial tone <laughs> when you picked up an old phone <laughs> and you had that tone that was, you knew that the phone was working. If you had no dial tone, you yeah. knew the phone is dead. And that's what the va- what we need for a healthy gut is vagal tone. But what's happening in modern society is that a lot of people are walking around with no vagal tone because they're so stressed. They're living in this sympathetic attack that it shuts off 
the parasympathetic nervous system and specifically when it relates to the gut and the health of the vagus. Because the vagus is controlling through that tone the production of stomach acid, the secretion of digestive enzymes, and the permeability of the gut. So what's really fascinating is that when a person has a head injury, we learn a lot sometimes from other things that you might think are not related to gut health. But when a person has a concussion you know, and they get knocked out, they end up in the hospital, within 30 minutes, gut permeability increases because they have lost vagal tone. And now all these inflammatory substances start coming into the body. And this person who just had a concussion now is being swarmed with inflammation that's coming from the gut because they just lost vagal tone. We also know that you lose vagal tone in, or people who have chronic depression lose vagal tone. And they've actually used a vagal stimulation device to treat refractory depression with a success rate of about 37% to people who were not responding to any medication. So it plays a role even in how we feel. Um, There's a, a role in the vagus in migraines. And so it's important in both directions. And maintaining vagal tone, I think, is one of the big challenges in our modern society where everybody's living in more of a sympathetic tone. Yeah. So do you treat any Alzheimer's dementia patients? Are you treating any of their gut health? Yeah, I don't have Alzheimer's patients, but I do have dementia patients. And we always work on gut health. It's a little bit of a challenge uh, depending on the level of understanding of the patient. For example, I have a patient who's got dementia and Parkinson's. And we did some testing and found that he's got pretty significant wheat sensitivity. And he's an Italian. And he's close to, he's probably in his later 80s. So telling an Italian that you can't have regular pasta anymore because you're gluten sensitive in their late 80s who has dementia, it's hard to explain that. But, you know, I team up with the family and we just figured out ways, you know, we can switch it. There's a lot of great gluten-free pastas now that you wouldn't know are gluten-free and he can have his pasta, but we know we're giving him something that's better for him. And when we took him off of gluten, his balance improved. His ability to move improved. It's just pretty amazing how, you know, sometimes, and that's why I said it's both complex and simple because sometimes it's one simple singular intervention that creates an incredible effect for the person. You know, it could be that taking out gluten reduces migraines by 75%. And that's the only thing you did. But you have to understand that taking out gluten is allowing the gut lining to heal. It's reducing inflammation in the body because we know from at least one study that gluten causes the expression of zonulin, which controls gut permeability like a dimmer switch. So more zonulin, the more permeable the gut is. And gluten can do that in people who are normal, people who have non-celiac gluten sensitivity and people with celiac disease. And it's interesting because it's gradated. People with celiac are going to be the most sensitive to gluten and the effect it has on gut permeability. Second, the people who are gluten sensitive, but not celiac. And third, 
even normal people overexposed to gluten are going to develop some level of gut permeability. Maybe it's not a lot. Maybe it's not enough for the person to start noticing that they have gut-related health issues. But over time, it can happen and it slowly degrades the gut and attacks. And if there is any predisposition to celiac, I had my oldest celiac patient was a 52-year-old woman who I diagnosed with celiac disease at 52. And for years, she had been suffering from fatigue and some thyroid issues and turned out to be autoimmune thyroid. And then we figured out that she had celiac disease. So I understand that everybody's body's different, but what are some of the most common foods that you see people are reacting to? Yeah, the big ones are dairy, gluten, soy, corn. Let me explain corn because corn and wheat are related. They're kind of, you can think of them as cousins. And there are what we call corn wheat epitopes that cross-react. So you might be gluten sensitive, but then your antibodies will cross-react with corn or vice versa. And there's other reactions because you can actually develop antibodies antibodies to non-gluten proteins in wheat as well. Eggs are up there, and that seems illogical, but eggs, for a lot of people, can have a food sensitivity to eggs. And then, of course, nuts, peanuts, things like that. I had a patient who came to see me who had done, was doing all sorts of elimination diets, and she had been suffering from nausea for four years, gone to multiple gastroenterologists, she had the red herring. She had maybe a small hiatal hernia. She maybe had mild amount of gastritis. So they were trying to get her on anti-acid medications. And she just wasn't feeling well. She had become very sensitive to different foods. She had tried cleaning out her diet. When she came to see me, we took eggs out. She had never done that. Within a month of not eating eggs, the nausea disappeared that she had for four years. And I say that just as an example that food sensitivities can present in weird ways. Like who would think like that was her only symptom. She would get nauseous and it was the eggs. So, and you can test for that. So speaking of the anti-acid, you know, talk about the PPIs and importance of stomach acid. My husband was on a PPI for years, years. He got off and we did a Cyrix food sensitivity test. He's polyreactive. For people that don't know what that is, that means whole food sensitivity test lights up. Really difficult uh, for him to understand. Like, I can't eat anything. The whole food sensitivities lit up. I guess it's kind of two questions there. Let's talk about the importance of the stomach acid and then what you see sometimes with this polyreactivity on these sensitivity test? Well, first of all, for people to understand, in order to digest protein, you need stomach acid. And the typical pH of a healthy stomach is anywhere between two and three, which is quite acidic. And the stomach is well designed to protect itself from that. It creates a mucus layer. It's a specially designed surface to be able to house that pH, which is also protective because it can kill bacteria, kills yeast. So if anything that comes through your food inevitably that you get exposed to, it can help um, stop it before it gets into the rest of your digestive system. You need that acid level in order for your proteases that break down protein, the enzymes that break down protein, to act at their optimal level. So person who is on a PPI, proton pump inhibitor, 
And protons are hydrogen atoms that are secreted into the gut. Everybody knows what hydrochloric acid is. Well, it's the hydrogen that makes it acidic. So the body, there are specialized cells in the gut that are called parietal cells that are designed to secrete hydrogen into the gut lumen to lower the pH so they make it more acidic. And they start doing that when you're about to eat. So then they then you secrete proteases and you're able to break down your protein into its component parts, which are amino acids. We don't react to amino acids. We can react to partially digested protein molecules, chains of amino acids, peptides. Usually it's about, to get a, an immune reaction, it has to be about 10 to 12 peptides, amino acids long, a, a short peptide. So for your husband who lit up with everything, that's another way, to, another way to look at it is this test is verifying that he has leaky gut, right? Because he's reacted to so many foods. And two, he's not able to break down his protein properly. Not a surprise when you're on a proton pump inhibitor that is raising the pH of your stomach probably too high. So it's like you're basically handicapping those proteases they don't have the capability of handling the load of protein that you just put into your gut. And so it seems counterintuitive for people because they ask, well, but if I have heartburn, if I have acidity, taking a PPI, taking something to lower the stomach acid is the solution, isn't it? And when I took it, I felt better, you know, which is really hard to reconcile that because the truth is the reason that they had acidity to begin with for the majority of cases, is that they weren't producing enough stomach acid. So when food comes into the stomach and sits there, the stomach starts filling up with gastric juice, doesn't stop because the food isn't breaking down, so it just keeps secreting more, but it's being inhibited from secreting hydrogen atoms, so this high pH gastric juice is just not breaking down that protein, and eventually it gets pushed up into the esophagus where the person experiences heartburn, acidity, because it's still acidic. You've got to get all the way to pH 7 to get neutral. And we're starting in a stomach that's pH 2. When you give someone a proton pump inhibitor, you get them to kind of a pH 4 or 5. Still acidic, but not acidic enough to break down protein in the way that it needs to be broken down. So then you see people like this develop food sensitivities, leaky gut, then start developing mental health issues. They might become depressed. They might become unmotivated. They might start feeling anxious because they're not breaking down their protein to get the amino acids that are the precursors for serotonin, for dopamine, for norepinephrine, for the neurotransmitters that are so important for, for mental health. So you see all the, the tie-ins here with that, which is why I think... You know, I say it's complex and simple at the same time. And to me, it's just so fascinating how this part of the body works and how many domino downstream effects one thing can have. And I always thought, you know, as, as a doctor, even as a young doctor, when I was in training and the proton pump inhibitors started coming to being back in the, I think the earliest one dates to the late 80s. And then they, they started popping up in the 90s into the 2000s. And I was in training from 99 to 2002. And I would ask, you know, I just thought, isn't it normal? You know, just a very simple question. Didn't we evolve to have stomach acid? Why is it okay to, 
to block that. Is that okay? Is that really not going to have any health effects in the body? This was 2000 when gastroenterologists were saying, we, just, we should just put PPIs in the water. They're perfect for everyone. Everyone should take it. Everybody has heartburn. Everybody's drinking too much wine, oh like eating gosh. steak dinners. Like we should just put it in the water. And my question is, what are we causing by disrupting a physiological system that we evolved with? And the answers came years later, calcium malabsorption, so it can lead to osteoporosis, iron malabsorption, B12 malabsorption, so it can lead to B12 deficiency that leads to neurological issues, including memory loss, increased risk for community-acquired pneumonia, increased risk for C. diff, which is a severe infection of the colon that can even lead to hospitalization and possibly death in severe cases. And SIBO, I had a patient who came in who developed small intestinal bacterial overgrowth from being put on a PPI, and then mental health issues. And the scary thing is, is that, that PPIs are the second most prescribed medication worldwide. This is a billion-dollar industry that's causing a whole host of other problems for people. Now, I want to qualify it because it's sounding like I'm completely against PPIs. If you have an ulcer, you may need a PPI to heal that ulcer because you don't want to bleed out from that ulcer. So they serve a purpose. The problem I have with them is that a lot of doctors put a patient on a PPI and never have an exit plan. They have the entry plan and then it's just automatic renewal after renewal. Yep. And I'll see, see people that are still on a PPI 10 years later. And I ask them, but why are you still on this medication? What, why do you need it? And you probably know from your husband that getting a person off of a proton pump inhibitor is extremely challenging. And the way I like to describe it is that if you look at, if you, if you look at a pathology result of a person who has a a stomach biopsy while they're on a PPI, what you're going to see is the parietal cells have over multiplied. So you're stopping them from secreting hydrogen atoms. The body's response is, let's make more of them because the body is trying to go back to homeostasis, but it's all being blocked. I use, in a lecture that I give about this, I use the picture of a dam with all the water backed up behind and the dam is the PPI stopping. Imagine the water is the hydrogen. So what a lot of people do is they might hear, okay, PPIs are bad for me, so I'm just going to stop the PPI. And you should never do that. You've got to work with a doctor. You've got to work with your, a functional medicine practitioner because if you stop the PPI, these overproduced parietal cells you take the dam away, it's like you break the dam, suddenly all this acid is going to rush into the stomach. The person's going to tell you that they're worse than they've ever been. Their heartburn is horrible, but it's because of the physiology, the mechanism. You can't, once a person's been chronically on a PPI, you cannot stop it cold turkey. You actually have to wean them off of the PPI. Very similar to if you're weaning somebody off of an anxiety medication etc. 
you cannot stop it cold turkey. And it makes it quite challenging because you have to convince the person that the paradigm that they thought they were functioning under is completely incorrect. And what they really need is stomach acid in order to break down protein so they can feel better overall, physically, mentally, etc. This information is so good. Like I, I love your information here on this PPI because it just it it's a big issue that really needs to be addressed. So I appreciate that. I have one more question for you. I posted that you were coming on the podcast on Instagram and I had several questions, but this one I wanted to ask you. It says, I would be interested in hearing Dr. Pedre's thoughts on ulcerative colitis as I'm now suffering with this active disease after being in remission for the last seven years. Yeah, I mean, ulcerative colitis is an inflammatory condition of the colon that can have some other inflammatory components in other parts of the body but mostly results in bloody diarrhea or very mucousy diarrhea in people, especially when they're having a flare. And there's certain markers that you can look at to monitor the activity of the ulcerative colitis, like calprotectin, which is in a stool study. And it's just a marker for white blood cell activity. So when there is a flare, the question that needs to be asked, you know, because again, ulcerative colitis is just the naming of the condition, it's not telling you exactly what the underlying issue is that has triggered it. The question is, has there been some sort of shift in the microbiome? Has there been a shift in gut permeability? Is there a new gut infection like a parasite, a yeast overgrowth that might be the underlying trigger for this? And the interesting thing is that the um, They've been studying the effect of fecal transplants on people with ulcerative colitis, with Crohn's, and sometimes it can be very helpful. We're not certainly not at the point where we can say this is a treatment modality, but there's a clinic in England that has been doing this, and they have a whole protocol that they use. It sometimes can be really helpful by increasing the diversity because the one common thing for anybody who has ulcerative colitis is a dramatic loss of diversity of their gut microbiome. So things that can help improve diversity, and that's part of the GAPS diet, is making your own homemade yogurt. And that's one piece of a, a protocol that I've found has been very helpful for patients using the GAPS diet and making their own homemade fermented yogurt. But I think working with a functional medicine practitioner, naturopath, looking at functional gut testing to understand something changed here, we just have to look for what is it that change that shifted that's causing this flare. And mind, body, spirits, you also have to look at what's happening to the person emotionally, stress-wise. You know, make sure you're covering all the bases, both physical, mental, emotional, and work on all those levels. That's how I approach anyone, you know. So it doesn't matter what the disease is. The process is still the same, is looking for underlying root cause, testing the gut, understanding what could be the causality of it. And there can be multiple causes that are building up to this final effect that we're seeing as, as a disease, you know. So I've seen patients go through a divorce and then suddenly something flares that had been fine for years. Well, I really appreciate your time. You are a wealth of knowledge. 
I want the listeners to check out your book, Happy Gut. I will link that in the show notes. And if you want to take back control of your gut health, he's got a great program on there called Care. So, Doctor, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. 